Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 17. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? On the day the Lord God made earth and heavens, no shrub of the field being yet on the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused rain to fall on the earth, and there was no human to till the soil. And wetness would well from the earth to water all the surface of the soil. Then the Lord God fashioned the human, the human, humus from the soil, and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and he placed there the human he had fashioned. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river runs out of Eden to water the garden and from there splits off into four streams. The name of the first is Pishon, the one that winds through the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of the land is goodly. Delium is there and lapis lazuli. And the name of the second river is Gahan, the one that winds through the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, the one that goes to the east of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the human and set him down in the garden of Eden to till it and watch it. And the Lord God commanded the human, saying, From every fruit of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat from it, you are doomed to die. The word of the Lord. I can tell Chalice practiced that because to say the gemstones, the lapses lose, I mean, that's, that's impressive. Well, well done, Chalice. Um, y'all, when I was in my 20s, I, I started researching the Bible uh, academically uh, for the first time. And when I did this, one of the first things I learned was that Genesis had two creation stories, that in chapter two, there is an alternative story about the origins of humanity, and it doesn't have too much in common with the first story. And when I found this out, it kind of melted my brain. Like, seriously, it took me a while to recover, because for as long as I could remember, uh, there was one creation story in the Bible. God made the world, and then to cap it off, God made Adam and Eve and had this Garden of Eden. And even as I say this, there's definitely probably a few of us going, yeah, that's what I thought too. So if you're getting a little uneasy this morning, hearing that there are two different creation stories, before we start to explore the second story, can I just share with you what I wish someone would have told me much earlier in my 20s? You see, I had assumed or been taught that the Bible was univocal, that the Bible only speaks with one voice. And I get why I would have thought that, because as Christians, we talk about God speaking through multiple human authors, and so I figured, well, that one voice, that, that must be God. But as I searched the scriptures, I found that nowhere in scripture does it actually make that claim. 
And in reality, while as much of the Bible is about God speaking through human authors, it is just as much about human authors speaking about God. That means the Bible is not univocal, but rather multivocal. It is multiple voices centered around a shared narrative. And so now, when I read the Bible, I read it like I'm sitting at my dinner table in front of my most brilliant and thoughtful Christian friends sharing about what God has done in their lives. And when I do this, I I know that some of their experiences are going to be inevitably different. Uh, They're going to have emphases on different parts of faith. They might even disagree about God. But I'm not looking for uniformity. I'm not looking for the contradictions. I'm not even really bothered when there are. Instead, I want to place myself under their wisdom. Because I recognize that God has been at work in their lives. And I want to learn from their experiences. This is exactly what we see today in Genesis 2. This alternative story about our origins. It is a second voice to tell us about the character and nature of God. You see, scholars believe that within the Hebrew scriptures, and especially Genesis, there are two different groups telling stories. One is called the priestly group, and the other is called the Yahwehist group. Um, You can think of them like two different theologians or two different denominations, right? The same faith, same God, but two different perspectives. In Genesis 1... The seven cosmic days of creation, this came from the priestly voice. Now in Genesis 2, this alternative story set in Eden, this comes from the Yahwehist voice. And how do we know this? Well, for starters, God has a different name. In Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim. But in Genesis 2, God is referred to as Yahweh. But we can also tell that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different stories based on the order of events. Because particularly in Genesis 2, humans show up way earlier in the narrative. But just in case you're wondering... It's not like us modern people have suddenly found these contradictions that the original authors missed. C.S. Lewis calls this attitude chronological snobbery. And it's this idea that we modern people think that you know, ancient people were just barbarians who didn't know how to edit their own books. But to the contrary the highly educated Hebrew scribes were very much aware of these differences, and yet they compiled them side by side anyway. So if that's the case, we have to ask why. Why did the Hebrews include two creation stories? Why not just have one? Because each creation story highlights complementary truths about the character and nature 
of God. Genesis 1 highlights the grand magisterial nature of God, the God of gods, greater than any false God who is wholly self-sufficient and yet cares deeply for the needs of human creation. Genesis 2 will highlight something different, a personal, intimate God that desires relationship with that human creation. And so with that, let's dive in then at verse 5. On the day the Lord God made earth and heavens, no shrub of the field being yet on earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused rain to fall on the earth, and there was no human to till the soil, and wetness would well from the earth to water all the surface of the soil. Then the Lord God fashioned the human hummus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living creature. The biblical scholar Catherine McDowell has shown that in the ancient Babylonian empire, there was a practice of priests taking and shaping stone idols and placing them in a royal garden as part of a cult ritual. They would leave these stone idols overnight and and expect that they would be animated with the divine and come alive the next morning. And yet, at the beginning of this story, Yahweh God is depicted as a sacred potter. Yahweh is the sculptor. And God takes the soil and shapes not an idol, but a human from it. And the Hebrew here is pure poetry. God takes the ha-adamah and shapes the ha-adam. And it is from here, God doesn't leave us overnight. God instead blows breath into us to make us alive, not as a body with a soul or a soul with a body, but as a unified living being, both body and soul. Now, if you'll remember from Genesis 1, what makes humanity unique is that we are made in the image of God. This gives every person equal dignity and value. Now with humanity being made alive with the breath of God, this is Genesis 2's functional equivalent. This is the signal that all people, not just some people, have equal worth and value before God. And so it's with this intimate act of creation accomplished that God continues to demonstrate care for humans. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and he placed there a human he had fashioned. Now again, in contrast to the Babylonian idol rituals where the priest would place the idol in the royal garden, God here places a human in God's divine royal garden. And what would this garden look like? Well, the closest image for us might be a desert oasis, And we can see this by how the authors describe the river network in the beginning of verse 10. Now, surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, the level of detail you can see about these rivers around Eden led to endless speculation about the location of Eden. People tried to like triangulate it on a map of the Middle East. 
But there was a couple problems with this. Uh, the first is that even though we know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are, those are common to everyone, we don't know where the Pishon and the Gion rivers are a reference to. Cush could refer to at least two different regions, and Havilah is like anywhere but he's guess. It could be anywhere. So what does this mean? That the Garden of Eden is some faraway place that it is also every place. It is distant and strange, yet it is near and familiar. Why this juxtaposition? Because as we begin to see this as a story of human origins, and even more so about the human condition, we are meant to understand it in a similar way. Where we come from is both distant and strange but it is also near and familiar. The stories of the human condition have happened, but they are also happening. So what then do we observe about the human condition? Let's return to verse nine. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the human and set him down in the garden of Eden to till it and watch it. In the ancient pagan Near East stories, work is a punishment that is inflicted on humanity by the gods. But here in Genesis 2, work is part of what it means to be human. We were made for work. Now, if you are burned out at your job right now, this probably doesn't sound like good news for you, right? But I want you to think about children, right? They love to work. They love to build sandcastles and block towers. This last week, my daughter spent an hour making a fairy house out of sticks and petals. And she was so proud of it by the end. She like literally was ready to fight any kid on the playground to protect her fairy house. Work was originally meant not to be a curse, but a blessing. In fact, God made us not only to work for ourselves, but to work with God. The creator invites us to be co-creators. Now, I know this is going to cause some dissonance for some of us because we have in our minds the children's books that show Eden as some perfect paradise, But God doesn't actually make Eden this way. That's typically what happened in the ancient Near East pagan stories. The gods would make this perfect paradise in Eden and no humans were allowed. The gods just frolicked in it and did weird demigod kind of stuff. But in Genesis 2, we see another contrast. God shifts from being personified as a potter to now being personified as a gardener. God begins planting the garden, but the garden isn't finished. God asks the human to do the work of tilling it, to continue the work that God has started, to bring the garden to its full potential and then protect it. This is what it means for humans to be co-creators with God. We are to take the blessings 
and, and the gifts and all the raw materials of our life and use them to bring them to their full potential. All the while remembering that God is the source behind it all. And yet, parallel to this invitation by God for us to be co-creators, the narrator points out that there are two unique trees in this garden. The tree of life, which only gets like a passing mention, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which comes with a dire warning. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the humans, saying, From every fruit of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat, for on the day you eat of it, you are doomed to die. Okay, so this brings up a few questions. First, what exactly is this dangerous tree? Some people have suggested that to eat of it meant immortality or sexuality or technological progress or even like, you know, divine godlike omniscience. So what exactly is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And second, why would God put it in the middle of a garden? Right, like, couldn't it have been on the side of the garden, like, as a low-key shrubbery? Like, why does God put it in the smack-dab center of everything? Right, because it's like one thing not to tell your kid, don't touch the hot stove, right? That makes sense. But it's another thing to take the hot stove, put it in your kid's bedroom, paint it full of unicorns and rainbows, and then say, don't play with it, right? Like, whose fault is it when the kids get burned? I'm going to tell you, it's not the kid's fault. Now, again, this was a literal story. We might have some problems with God putting a death fruit in front of the first humans and being like, don't eat it. But this is not meant to be a literal play-by-play historical event. This is an origin story meant to teach us about the character and nature of God and the human condition. So what does this show us? First, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, what, what does it represent? Well, what it represents is actually a bit of a mystery Even today, no scholar is sure. And I think that's actually part of the point. In fact, even many early Christian theologians thought that the fruit of the tree wasn't even bad, but it was actually a good thing. They said that perhaps it maybe even had special wisdom, but that people weren't mature enough to handle it. Otherwise, it would be like you trying to give an infant solid food. It just wouldn't go well. And so there's no official answer for what the tree is. But I want to offer to you today how I make sense of it. And if you don't like it, you can just go Google another meaning. That is absolutely fine. So I personally think what the tree represents can be understood not as a solitary tree, but in the context of the trees around it. Here's what I mean. We often get a lot of anxiety about what this tree represents, because we're worried that we might make the same mistake. Like if I make the wrong choice in my life, if I eat metaphorically from the wrong tree, then God will punish me. But if you'll forgive the expression, 
I think this anxiety misses the forest for the trees. I actually think this tree is evidence of God's expansive freedom for us. Look, y'all, God takes an entire garden full of fruit-bearing trees. This This is an orchard, including one called the tree of life. And God says, eat from any one of them. They're they're all fine. I am giving you so much freedom. Just don't eat from this one tree. Y'all, that's not a God who's trying to curtail your freedom. That's not a God who's trying to bait you into making the wrong choice. And yet, man-made religion likes to weaponize this story by pretending that the tree you're not supposed to eat from is somehow all around you, that there's forbidden fruit everywhere. Don't eat from that tree of drinking. Don't don't eat from that tree of worldly music. Oh, and don't you dare think about eating from that tree of that relationship you want over there. Why? Because I, I mean God, God said so. But this story shows us the true character and nature of God. This is a God who says, you have so many good ways that you can live your life. And I'll bless them but I want to protect you from those very few choices that could lead to your destruction. But still, why put that choice in the center of the garden? Why not hide it from us? Because I think what the tree represents isn't sin, It isn't temptation. It's genuine relationship. You see, the way God is described in Genesis 1 is powerful and yet distant. But the way God is ultimately described in Genesis 2 is relational and yet vulnerable. Because real relationships always have vulnerability. They are vulnerable to one party telling another either in word or action, I don't value what we have. And so for God to enter into real relationship with humanity, there has to be some option. There has to be some choice for humanity to reject relationship with God. Otherwise, Eden is just a zoo and we are the main attraction. There's no dignity in that. Love can't exist in that. The tree at the center of the garden isn't divine temptation. It's divine vulnerability. It is the 
finite creation being given the power to wound the infinite creator. This is why when the first Christians were trying to make sense of the death and resurrection of Jesus, they often refer to Jesus' death not on a cross, but on a tree. Listen again to our first reading this morning from 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Hear this good news. By being vulnerable in front of us in the Garden of Eden, it was on a tree that God initiated relationship with humanity. And by being vulnerable in front of us on the hill of Golgotha, it was on a tree that God would restore relationship with humanity. Both times, we would wound the one who sought to love us. But on the second time, God would use that wounding to heal us. May you know the God who is powerful, but may you know the God who is vulnerable so that you might open your heart in return. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, Colin, we must have an entire audience full of theologians because the questions today, y'all, you brought it. All right, Colin. Yay. <laughs> they are, they're really hard, y'all. We need to give Colin some grace this morning because they're legit hard. All right, with this unified body and soul, what does that mean for us at death? We always talk about a soul leaving the body and it no longer being there and we either cremate or bury into the ground, but how does that reconcile here with God breathing life into us? Yeah, so this is, this is a longer conversation, but here's, I think, one way that's it's a helpful correction um, for because we, we exist in a highly dualistic society and this is a product of Greek dualism. And Greek dualism where you really get this idea of like, people say, oh, you're just a soul with a body, but the body is a shell and you'll leave the body behind. You, your soul is the most important thing. Jewish theology uh, places a really high value on the body uh, as part of God's creative goodness and God's creative glory. And so what this, I think the one thing we can take from this is, is that, yeah, you're, you're not just a, a body with a soul or soul with a body. It's that these two things are integrated. And that means that our redemption and that our salvation is connected to both body and soul. That God is redeeming our soul, but God is also redeeming our body. And this is why Christians believe in the resurrection of the dead, not just the souls in heaven, but like the idea that God will restore even our bodies into a glorified state. And that, that is reflected in this Eden story, as opposed to Greek philosophy, which would say that, well, your body's going to be gone and God's just going like, to fix your soul. All right, it seems throughout scripture, the name of God is extremely important and powerful. 
Can you briefly talk more about implications of different Hebrew traditions having different names for God? Well, that's a whole lecture, which I would not be capable of doing. <laughs> but just to kind of re-catch us up, if you, if you missed the last couple of weeks, so when God gets called Elohim, that's the God of gods. And so that is, that is a, more of a majestic kind of exp- explanation of God and that, that this God is greater than all the other gods, like any sort of council, any sort of pantheon, this God is supreme. So it's emphasizing God's absolute sovereignty with Elohim. Yahweh is going to be a more personal name. Yahweh is going to be the name of the Hebrew God. It's like how God interacts with the Hebrew people. Um, and Yahweh is also going to be more of like a God with, with character. And even early on, Yahweh is kind of understood as a warrior God, um, which is very interesting that it starts off God's like being a potter, God's being a gardener, and Yahweh's eventually going to be understood as a warrior. But Yahweh's going to have a lot more personality to this kind of God. And so, yeah, looking at God as not just this kind of the, the creator of all things, but a God that actually interacts with us. And so those are going to be the two distinctions we're seeing right now with these particular names of God. All right. Why is the tree that you can't eat from called the knowledge of good and evil? It kind of makes it seem like God doesn't want us to have knowledge, especially to later Christians and people who critique Christianity. Yeah, and so this is why no one can really figure out what it means. Like everyone's got these suggestions, but there isn't like an official, this is the definition. Uh, and that's why even some Christians are like, well, maybe it is a good thing. We just had it too early. Um, and so I, I, would, I would caution anyone from being like, this is what it means. I think the, the greater question is, one, the context in which the, the, the tree is there, and then also, how does it end up kind of harming our relationship with God and one another after we choose to transgress that? And then, so I think those are the more important parts because those seem to be more clear in the story, whereas what it represents is kind of a mystery. But I also think that's kind of a good thing. All right. Well, thank you so much for answering these very difficult questions. And you get to do some more tomorrow on Facebook and Instagram. He is going to be answering the rest of the questions y'all have so amazingly texted in. And if you're watching later or live stream, please feel free to text in more questions um, and Colin will address them tomorrow. Great. Thanks, Sam.